Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, I, I, I have to be honest, I've always liked zombies, and uh, I like The Walking Dead, I like various movies of zombie movies, and I like this this scenario of how do you survive under these circumstances, and so this is something that, you know, for fun, I like to, to think about these issues. And then I also have always really liked to think about what are some fun ways to present mathematics because, you know, I, you know, as a math professor, of course, I find mathematics beautiful, but I am fully aware that not everybody feels that way. And so the question is always, well, what could I do that would be a way to get people to listen to the mathematics long enough to see how beautiful it really is? And this idea of juxtaposing these two words that are just so opposite, you know, so unrelated in most people's minds, zombies and calculus, once I saw those two, thought about those two words being together in a title. I just thought, okay, I've got to write a book that goes along with this. You know, how can I tie those two together? And I started thinking about all the different applications that there are and how you could fit many of those applications into this particular topic, into this question of surviving the zombie apocalypse. And so it was just a very fun idea. This is Relatively Prime. Authors in the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. That was Colin Adams, mathematics professor at Williams College, and more importantly for us this October, zombie expert. I just realized that some of you probably just got really excited about the idea of zombies and mathematics. And so I'm really sorry because actually, even though this is the spooky season and zombies would be a very relevant topic, more important for this episode is Colin's role as an author. That's because I realized that while I have talked with a bunch of authors over the last 10 years that I've been producing mathematical podcasts, in particular, authors about general audience books about mathematics, I realized that I've never gathered together their insights about the writing of these books, and I needed to fix this oversight. So I thought that we could start by hearing some different perspectives on what led people to start writing about mathematics. I know that when I went in, I had a pretty specific idea in mind, namely a mathematician who was really excited about the topic of mathematics and decided that they wanted to share that excitement with the world. Uh, I mean, this is definitely the impression that I got for why Colin writes about mathematics, but it's definitely not the only path. For example, freelance writer and former director of publications for the Mathematical Association of America, Ivers Peterson, had a very different reason for starting to write about mathematics. I, I have a long-standing interest in writing, and I've been doing that since I was very young. And when I was in journalism school, I had a chance to do an internship at Science News Magazine, and that turned into essentially a full-time job, and I was there then for 26 years. And one of the things I noticed right away was that there was very little writing about mathematics. And in journalism, one way to get ahead is to be able to write about things that no one else writes about, uh, the scoops and so on. And when you've got a very small number of uh, people writing about math, then you have opportunity to do things that no one else is doing. It was also, it was a nice niche. The second part of it is that uh, I was not afraid of math. Even though my degrees were in physics and chemistry, I did take a heavy dose of math and I did teach some high school mathematics, calculus and so on. And so I wasn't afraid of it. It was what I didn't know, but I wasn't afraid of it in the way that many other people are. And that made it 
easy for me to get into a lot of subjects. And while I was doing this in the early 1980s, there were a lot of exciting developments involving crypto systems, uh, number theory, uh, all kinds of interesting number-related things. And those were relatively easy to get into. There was also some things on the Poincaré conjecture and uh, Thurston's uh, uh, ge geometry conjecture and so on. And I learned as I went, uh, but it was a nice niche. It, it was something that very few other people were doing. And even now, there aren't that many people writing about mathematics. Then there are others who have had a full career already and then decide that they need a shift in focus. Like Temple University mathematics professor and New York Times bestselling author, John Allen Paulos. Doing formal mathematics, scholarly mathematics, is is difficult. It's very, very difficult. And rather, I mean, I kind of almost made a conscious decision that, that rather than banging my head against the wall and trying to get uh, uh, some wrinkle on some old result or developing some very obscure nuance on some you know, uh, very minor theorem, I'd rather do this what, I, what I've done the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years, try to communicate with a, a larger audience. I mean, mathematics is by and large a young man's game, and I'm uh, you know, not as young as I used to be. Uh, that, coupled with inherent difficulty of mathematics, uh, suggested that I could do more good in general and for myself as well by uh, writing about mathematical aspects of stories in the news or the relevance of mathematics to the, the stock market, to, to storytelling, uh, even to religion. And sometimes writing can even show someone just how important it is that they do mathematics, which is what happened to University of Wisconsin mathematics professor Jordan Ellenberg while getting a master's in fiction writing from John Hopkins University. Well, I mean, I've always written a lot in high school and then in college. I did tons of creative writing workshops. And, you know, I figured, when else am I going to try this? I wanted to go and just write for a year and see what happened. And what I learned is that I missed doing math every single day. Of course, when you have a background in mathematics and writing, you can't exactly avoid combining the two. What really happened is that Slate wrote me sometime in like 2000, and they were like, oh, we want to have a math column. Do you want to try writing it. I think I sort of knew some guys who worked for Slate from college, and so my name came up as somebody who might be able to do it. I had done some amount of magazine writing when I was in grad school, so I had some clips, so I gave it a try, and then I ended up sort of falling into that as a kind of regular first hobby and then almost kind of a side profession. I, you know, to be quite frank, there are a lot of people who can write novels. There are not as many who can write meaningfully about what's going on in mathematics, so that's been I feel like I can sort of do more good that way in, in some sense. Simply deciding or being asked to write about mathematics is not enough, though. You also have to come up with what you want to write about, especially if you're going to write a general audience mathematics book. For Dave Richeson, math professor at Dickinson College, this came down to realizing there was a very famous and important equation which had very little written about it for a general audience. And thus was the idea for Euler's gem born. So Euler's polyhedron formula, one of the things that I mentioned uh, early on in the book is that this is a beloved formula by mathematicians. I mentioned that there was a, a survey in the 90s by the Mathematical Intelligencer magazine of what uh, the readers thought was the most beautiful theorem in mathematics. And this was, this was voted number two. So it was the number two most beautiful theorem. However, you know, although I was 
took a lot of math classes in high school and was a math major in college, I wasn't, I was, didn't learn about the polyhedron formula until I got to graduate school. And so that right, that right there is an interesting fact. And once I did learn about it, it, it just seemed to show up again and again in all these different areas of math that I studied. And, and I, I felt that they were, you know, that it was elementary enough that it could be explained to people who were not in graduate school in math. And uh, there didn't seem to be a, a book on the market that, uh, that talked about the polyhedron formula in the way that I thought uh, it should be treated. And so, um, so that's sort of how the idea began. It's like, this would be a great book, and no one has written it yet. And so that was, that was what sort of got me started on this project. The beauty and the interesting nature of certain mathematical topics is what ends up driving Collins' topic choices. The goal is to, to you know, to talk about really interesting, beautiful mathematics. And in the zombies and calculus, I'm doing that, but I'm couching it within the zombie story. But also in the, in the not theory book, I just thought not theory is so cool, so pretty, so many pretty pictures. It's using such cool mathematics. And so I was just, it just sort of, the, the, the book wrote itself in some sense, because I just found that material so interesting. And in the topology book, which I wrote with a friend, Bob Franzosa, we decided that normally topology is taught as a very abstract subject. It's just pure topology. And both of us had seen these various applications of topology, me through knot theory, Bob through geographic information systems, and that we thought were just really cool. And there were no books that really talked about the applications of topology. And so we said, look, we've got to write this book. Here's a way to drive a topology course through the applications. And so we started working on it, and Bob had certain applications he was interested in, and I had certain applications I was interested in. And by the time we were done, suddenly we found ourselves with, with this book, which was really a lot of fun to write, because you're thinking, you know, how can we approach this from this completely different viewpoint? And it was really fun. So, so the truth is, I'm just trying to have fun, you know, and, and when I write a book, I come up with an idea, and I think, ah, oh, this would be fun to do. And then, I'm, you know, two years later, it's like, thank goodness that's done. But, <laughs> but, uh, but it's really fun coming up with the ideas. I really like that. Jordan's journalistic work provided plenty of time. Topics. And it turns out that the ones that would work for a book sort of made themselves known. I've been writing journalism for, gosh, like probably almost 15 years now. And when you do that, you know, you're pitching stories or people are pitching ideas to you and you're writing the piece. There's things that you can do in 800, 1,000, 1,200 words and you can do really well, really nice, discreet, small ideas that you can explain. But you're constantly encountering things where you're like, oh, I want to say something about this, but I can't do it in this format. I can't do it in an 800-word Slate article or an 800-word New York Times article, right? It needs to stretch out. It needs to make those connections with other things. So over the years, you develop a reservoir of stuff like that that are not going to work unless you can do it in a longer format. So that's where all that stuff really came from. And then, of course, once you start writing, you follow links where they go, and then you find other stuff. I mean, the whole section in the middle about the Massachusetts lottery was not something I had planned to do. So somehow I like came across that story and then you sort of dig and you dig and you become kind of obsessed. And that ended up being like a hundred pages of the book, like everything that came out of like just finding out about this crazy story. In the most extreme case I found, it wasn't even about the specific topics. Instead, it was about how Matt Parker, author of Things to Make and Do in the Fourth Dimension and Humble Pie, wanted readers to experience the book. Okay, uh, I've done. Okay, yes, math. Okay, got it right. So a lot of popular math books, they will talk about math that people have done in the past or some interesting bits of maths that you can uh, look up now. But a lot of it is, is really describing the math and not giving people a chance 
to, to do that maths themselves. And so I want to do a book where it's not just the history of the subject. It's not just stories about the people who did it. It's actually content you can do yourself. So I really want it to be a book where you don't just read along with the math. You actually have a go with it uh, yourself. Once you have your topic or topics, you can actually start writing. But how are you going to write about your topic? What approach are you going to take? The answers to these questions are highly dependent on your audience. And audience is something authors think a lot about. In Ivor's case, ideas about audience are largely driven by previous experience. It's partly my experience as a high school teacher. I, I, I taught high school for uh, eight years altogether before I went into journalism. And in a classroom, the students are right there. You can see how they react, how they respond to various things and, and, and so on. And when I write, and this has been true for the last 30 years, when I write, I really picture those students in my mind saying, how can I interest them? Will they like this? Will they get this? And so on. And so uh, uh, as a writer, I always find that it's very good to picture who your audience is precisely. And I still retain, after, even after all these years, a sense of uh, what high school students are like, at least the way <laughs> they were back in more than 30 years ago. But it's writing for an audience, knowing that it's not just for me. I'm writing to persuade these particular people and high school students seem about the right level for what I, I want to convey, can I get the idea across to them? So that's the other piece of, of my way of doing things. Steve Strogatz from Cornell University, on the other hand, takes a more individualistic approach to this audience question. The easiest was to write a textbook because that I had seen many textbooks in my own life. I knew which things I liked or didn't like. So that felt very comfortable. Plus, I had given all those lectures before and sort of knew what worked or didn't work. Sync was really hard because I didn't know who the reader was. And I couldn't visualize, you know, who is the reader of pop science exactly? I don't know. Um, but yeah, the opinionator, I had no idea who was going to read those. Yeah. And um, I tried at some point to not think about it too much. <laughs> because it's very inhibiting to worry, you know. If, I mean, if I'm imagining writing for a fellow mathematician, it's too trivial. And if I'm writing for my my mother-in-law, she's not going to understand it no matter what I write. You know, sorry about that, Grandma, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I Sometimes I find it helpful. To, there, I have one friend who is very curious about science, but who doesn't know any math. And I often think I'm writing to him. So if I visualize writing to him, it usually gives a good voice to the piece because it's friendly. I like this guy. I yeah. want him to understand. I know that he doesn't know certain basic things, so those are the things I'm going to have to explain. But I know he's very smart, so I try not to insult the reader by explaining too much. Or, but then again, it may be that there's only one reader who likes it. <laughs> Maybe not even. No matter who an author believes their audience to be, for Dave, that audience is one of the most important factors when it comes down to how to write. It's important to write to your audience, and figuring out who your audience is is, is a key part of, of writing well, um, regardless of what you're writing. Um, so I have one audience, which is, you know, me personally, I have one audience when I write on my blog, which uh, would be probably people I would consider mathematical enthusiasts. They may have mathematical training, or they may just like math. And then I have a different audience when I'm writing research papers that are going to be published in mathematical journals, and a different audience perhaps for my book that I wrote. 
And the, the distinctions are sort of subtle and the, you know, the number of formulas you use and the, the level of rigor and uh, things like that need to be adjusted in either case. One of the things that I hammered home with my students when they did their podcast, though, is that you always have to tell the truth. So even if you're writing it for a general audience and you can't go into all the mathematical details, you can't make it so simple that it's not mathematically true anymore. And I think that is one of the things that makes popular math writing a real challenge is, is keeping it honest and true, but also accessible to less mathematically sophisticated audiences. In order to achieve that accessibility, John thinks it's all about understanding where your audience is and then meeting them there. Once you go to where people are, which is they know X, Y, and Z, but they don't know X, Y, and Z in a mathematical sense, but they, they understand the humor, they understand the stock market, they understand storytelling. Use those uh, interests as a kind of lever to get them to understand a bit of mathematics as well. Alex Bellos, author of Here's Looking at Euclid and Grapes of Math, thinks very deeply about how to accomplish this goal of meeting the audience where they already are. I was aiming when I wrote my book at someone who, an audience that hasn't really done math or might have done math 10, 20 years ago at school, um, but that finds it a bit dry and finds it a bit boring. Not for the mathematical community. And actually, I've been surprised and sort of wonderful that the mathematical community have read it and actually enjoyed it too, because they weren't the main target. The target was someone who thinks, oh, math is boring. So my aim was to say, no, math is not boring. But you don't tell someone who thinks something is boring, this isn't boring. Because that reinforces the fact that they think it's boring because he's trying to argue against it. <laughs> what you do, you've got to let the subject speak for itself. You've got to just talk about how you're interested in it. And you've got to let the um, your enthusiasm be contagious. And I decided to put myself in the book. So it's sort of my travels as a travelogue, because that is one technique to make a narrative. It can be my own understanding of it. So I'm your guide and you're with me. And as I understand things, you come with me. And also I realized as a journalist, the mantra is show, don't tell. So you need to just show it the way it is rather than saying it is like this. For example, you don't want to say India, which is a poor country, you can say, as I walked up the rickety steps into the temple, I've not told you this is a poor country. I've showed something, you know, I've shown something. So that, that space is just yeah. show and tell. And what I realized would be great is rather than me telling you the maths, have someone interesting tell you the math in an interesting way. So... I could talk about hyperbolic geometry, for example, by saying, you know, there was Euclidean geometry, and then in the 19th century, uh, Bolyai and Lobachevsky and blah, 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 blah. It's quite boring me saying it. But if I have a female academic from Latvia who has made an advance using crochet tell me 
in sort of excited tones about how she was crocheting in front of her husband. And she was like, wow, look what I've done. I've done what no one could do before. Then you have her story and it just becomes a lot more interesting. Likewise, you know, the story of Zero, you know, the whole book's been written on Zero, you know, Zero invented by the Indians maybe one and a half thousand years ago. I could have said, Zero was invented by the Indians one and a half thousand years ago. Much more interesting to say, in the temple, the guru dressed in pink robes sat down in front of 20 people all prostrate on the floor, and he said, Zero was invented here only one and a half thousand years ago. And all of a sudden, that's just much more interesting. And yes, I am sugarcoating the pill. I'm trying to go slowly and give all these other things that people can grab hold of before I get to the complicated, the bit that's a bit more conceptual, a bit more complicated. And I guess the trick, and I'm not sure I've succeeded in all cases, is to go slow enough to take the non-mathematician, but to include enough colour that's entertaining for the person who knows where you're going to actually want to stick with you. And that's that's the trick, because usually you either go too slow, that people who know anything about maths, who turns out are my main readers now, um, they ah, this is so slow, I've read this in other books, or you go too fast where the lay reader, the general reader, just says, ah, oh, this guy, who does he think I am? Does he think I've got a degree in math? So that's that was how I approach that problem it was to bring in as much extraneous color on the one hand slowed things down so you weren't being bombarded by conceptual ideas but also made it entertaining for people who knew what was coming this slowness which is possible in books was also mentioned by matt but for different reasons uh night before last i we did the 38th show on tour of our spoken nerd show and before that we did it at the edinburgh fringe 23 times and before that we did it in preparation about 11 times and so we're, we're going to end up doing this thing nearly 100 times and so we're well over 50 60 70 times into it now and even then after the show we're like oh we could change that i could tweak that like you never finish a routine and so it's, it's a very iterative process whereas writing for a book is is much it's a lot slower for a start so it took me two years from when i first started writing it to when i could no longer change the manuscript without the publishers trying to hurt me and that, that so two years of working away on the one project was, was amazing but you get it's a lot slower you don't you get far fewer kind of iterations so i wrote well normally you write a first draft i wrote a zeroth draft handed that in Got that, got all the comments back from my editor. And it's the first book I've done. So I wrote, I overwrote. I wrote like one and a quarter times, one, actually one and a third times maybe what I had to actually fill a book with. It came back, I then cut it down, and then it went through two, two and a half, three, possibly more drafts before the finished product that you see um, in bookshops defaced by me. And that's it for me, I'm used to having far more versions bouncing backwards and forwards. But the advantage of a book is you can go into so much more detail. You have a much better control of what level of detail and not action, but what this thing actually is trying to say. The, the whole, everything behind it, there's just too much detail from too many different bits of mathematics. And so in my book, I was like, I can do this. And so the whole way through the book, 
I'm drip feeding as little bits here and there where I'm building up the things you need to do the Riemann hypothesis, some actual credit, like do it decently. And then I was able to do that right towards the very end of the book. And, and for me, I mean, that was very, very different to doing stuff on stage. But for me, that was the huge advantage of, of doing it in book form. That seems just as good a place as any to end this exploration of the thoughts of authors of general audience mathematics books. Just to recap, you heard Colin Adams, author of many books, including Calculus and Zombies, Ivers Peterson, author of The Mathematical Tourist, and many more, John Allen Paulos, whose many books include Innumeracy, Jordan Ellenberg of How Not to Be Wrong, Euler's Gem author Dave Richeson, Matt Parker, who already got a plug, Steve Strogatz, another multi-book author whose works include Sync, and Alex Bellows, who also already got a plug, but whose UK titles are Alex's Adventures in Numberland and Alex Through the Looking Glass. Make sure to check out their books. I have personally enjoyed the writing of each and every one of them. And yes, that is all the time we have for this episode of Relatively Prime. I want to thank, really thank, all of the authors that I talked to today. And I sort of have to thank them across time because some of those interviews were recorded as far back as 2009. Wow, I've really been talking about mathematics on the internet for a long time. And if you want links to any of their work, you can find them in the show notes at relprime.com. You can also find links to this song that I'm talking over and talked over in the beginning by Lowercase N, as well as a link to that zombie horde sound from Mike Koenig that I played earlier on. While you're at relprime.com, you should also check out the little support tab, which will bring you to the Patreon, which you can also go to patreon.com slash relprime to find, where you can help support the show. Because really, without my patrons on Patreon, I couldn't make this show. So thank you all so much. If supporting in that way isn't possible, I totally understand. But could you do me a tiny favor and say, go to your podcast platform of choice and just leave a little review. So I think that just leaves the little bit about how this is a Creative Commons attribution share alike license podcast, which means that you can feel free to remix it however you want, as long as you share it in the same way and say that you got the audio from Relatively Prime. Oh, and of course, have a math month, y'all.